Chapter 20, The Forbidden Land As we trudged up the valley, cutting our way through the dense growth, we were both preoccupied with the probable nature of the danger that gave this land its evil reputation. Discounting the interference of supernatural agencies, there still seemed plenty of likely reasons why this country had so successfully resisted man's invasion. True, the land was mountainous, but this was not unusual in Mexico. Unless one believed the legend of inhabited Mayan cities, there seemed no human agency to fear. Three things remained. Poisonous plants, deadly insects, or some endemic of the country. One of these three had killed an army, but which one? Round the night fires in a dozen little villages, we had listened to strange stories of an enchanted lake, magic gourds, fearsome beasts, to tales of vengeful spirits that guarded this land well. Although we had heard nothing concrete of which to be afraid, these stories created, against all reason, a state of mind in which the very atmosphere was surcharged with an ominous quality. We were more affected than we liked to admit by the genuine fear that this country inspired in the natives. The jungle in itself frightening to many people, we had grown to like. While it was full of physical discomfort, it had nevertheless an inexhaustible fascination. There was an excitement, a sense of uncertainty in traveling through it, a continual challenge to the spirit of adventure. We had worked out a philosophy regarding it and ourselves that perhaps gave us a certain detachment from the purely personal considerations of bodily pain, which is an inescapable concomitant to jungle travel. We had accepted the fact that the jungle can't be fought. It imposes a necessity for compromise, a yielding and an adaptability to its humors that makes men hate or love it. All that day and the next we cut through the heavy growth of the canyon, following the trail of the army. Many of the trees were covered with the scars of their machete marks, but there was nothing to indicate that they had encountered any difficulty beyond that inherent in entering the jungle at all. Late in the afternoon, however, our bodies began to sting, as if a thousand needles were being jabbed into us. With one accord, we started cutting our way to the water. Unstrapping our gun belts, we hurriedly jumped into the pool. Our bodies were covered with pinolillos, those tiny, biting curses of the jungle. We scrubbed them off with pads of moss before they had a chance to dig in, and immediately took off our native clothes and put on shorts. The horse's legs were also covered with them, so we gave her a scrubbing in the pool. Since the tiny ticks burrow into the seams of clothing, it was evident that men in shoes, breeches, and leggings must have suffered tortures from them. That night, while setting up camp, we found the ground covered with conchudos, a larger and equally painful tick. For us, the solution was simple. We burnt off the campsite and set up the bug-proof tent. 
but poor old Pussyfoot had no relief from their torment throughout the night. In the morning we spent over an hour picking them off her. There were hundreds of them in her ears, which were raw and bleeding by the time we had pulled the last one out. We daubed them with a solution of permanganite and continued on up the canyon. High cliffs closed in on either side of us. It was necessary to cross and recross the stream to find a place wide enough to get through. The horse suffered more than we did, for although we unloaded her pack and carried it ourselves, the stream bed was so deep and so filled with boulders that she had difficulty in making the fords. By noon, she was so exhausted that we picked a fairly clear place near the stream and made camp. The canyon opened out here, and just behind us was a large flat, shaded by great trees. As I led Pussyfoot back into the flat, looking for a place for her to forage, I saw a shiny object sticking up out of the hummus. It was a battered, enameled pot. I called excitedly to Ginger, for I knew this was possible evidence that the army had camped here. Together we unearthed pieces of old army cots, rusted rifle barrels whose stalks had almost completely rotted away, battered kettles, and other bits of rusted and decomposed army equipment. We spent the rest of the day trying to decipher the fate of the men who had left these things behind them. The next morning I found Pussyfoot with her head bowed almost to the ground. There were several deep gashes on both sides of her neck. The hair below them was matted with dried blood, and they looked as though they had been cut with a very sharp knife. The poor horse was so weak from loss of blood that she stumbled repeatedly as I led her back to camp, and I knew that it was not possible to take her any farther into a country infested with vampire bats. Contrary to general opinion, these bats are not bloodsuckers, but they lap up the blood which runs freely from the incisions which they make with their sharp teeth. The only thing to do was to take Pussyfoot back to the last village that we had come through and leave her. The fence would have prevented her from reaching the village without us, and if we turned her loose on the other side of it without putting in an appearance ourselves, the natives would either start looking for us or send out word that we were lost. So we escorted Pussyfoot back to the village, taking four days to make the trip and return. Traveling up the canyon now became difficult. Each of us carried a heavy pack, and we had to cut every foot of the way if we traveled along the river's banks. If we waded in the stream, we had to fight a swift current as well as climb over the huge boulders which filled its bed. All along the way we continued to find evidences of the men who had preceded us. Numbers of blazed trees indicated that at least a considerable number of them had come this far. Then one day we came across the last traces that we were to find. For several miles their trail had been growing fainter. Finally we lost it completely. We stopped to reconnoiter. A short distance behind us, there was a large open cave in the face of the limestone cliff, and we made our way back to it. Its roof was blackened by the smoke of many campfires. 
digging round in the humus near the entrance yielded bits of every conceivable thing that an army would carry. The equipment was so thickly scattered about that every square foot of ground gave up something. The men had thrown away their machetes, the one indispensable tool in the jungle. There were parts of rifles, cooking gear, buttons from clothes, but not a solitary clue to what had become of the men themselves. Nor did we ever find any. But we think we know. We decided to make camp on their old site and see if anything would throw further light on their tragedy. For it was evident that the army's wild rout had been caused by something. Men in the jungle do not throw away their machetes, their guns, their clothing for no reason, particularly men who are native to the country. We doubted that they had been attacked by wild Indians, for the Indians would surely have salvaged the guns and machetes. Certainly starvation or lack of water had not been the cause, for the jungle was full of foodstuffs, with which some of them at least would have been familiar, while the river was only a stone's throw. True, the place was alive with pinolillos and conchudos, but we were beginning to develop a certain immunity to their poison, and it hardly seemed likely that they had suddenly finished off several hundred men. The thing that puzzled us most was why they had not turned back. The trail which they had cut in would still have been fresh, and they were no more than a week's journey from the village where we had taken Pussyfoot. The possibility of some swift and deadly epidemic remained, or some unknown scourge, something as deadly to men as the vampire bats were to animals. Like the beaches along the coast of Baja, California, where we had come across the campsites of shipwrecked crews, this place filled us with a sense of desolation, which we did our best to fight off. At last, tired, depressed, and no nearer the solution of the mystery than when we arrived, we went to sleep in our bug-proof tent. When I awoke, my body felt as if, to use a familiar expression, it had gone to sleep. It was numb and tingly all over, as though the circulation had been impeded. My head felt as if it were stuffed with cotton. The feeling was much the same as the after-effects of an anesthetic. I lay still for a while, trying to determine what could be the matter with me. When I finally unzipped the tent flaps and staggered out, I could hardly use my legs. They felt like unwieldy clubs. Something was decidedly wrong, and I wakened Ginger. She rolled over on her stomach and crawled out of the tent. I stared at her body in amazement and horror. From the expression on her face, I knew that I must be in a similar condition. With a sickening shock, I realized what had happened to us. We stared at each other for a long minute, and then uttered the one word, Talaje. The most deadly insect in the jungle had bitten us. The natives regarded it as a catastrophe of the first magnitude to be bitten once by a Talaje, and we were covered with their bites. The possible dangers of our condition made a malarial attack alone in the jungle seem about as important as a light case of the grip at home. Minutes passed before we could collect our scattered wits. I crawled back into the tent and examined the sleeping bag, which was fairly alive with the little gray insects, 
In one corner of the tent was a small tear in the canvas door. Somehow, some way, we had snagged the tent during the previous day's traveling, and the talajes had found their way in. The talaje is a small gray insect which travels only at night and is found only in certain sections of the country. It is believed that they live in humus or rotten wood. Occasionally they are found in native huts. Flesh eaters, they are reputed to travel great distances following the scent of human beings. Before the talaje bites its host, it injects under the skin an anesthetic powerful enough to numb the flesh for an hour or two. Then it injects another chemical, which dissolves the flesh upon which the insect feeds. When it is through feeding, blood fills the little cavity beneath the skin, forming a blister. Within a short time, a black bruise forms round the blister, as the poison works its way out through the capillaries of the skin. If the skin is broken, a running sore develops, which lasts for several months, and since it is liable to infection, it is frequently fatal. If the blister is not broken, new flesh forms in the cavity in about a week. Then the sore scabs over and dries up. Now we knew what had happened to the army, but death for ourselves seemed a pretty stiff price to pay for finding out. We carefully picked our way down to the creek, and as carefully washed the remaining talajes from our clothes and bodies, for one careless move might break a blister. Then we sat on a rock with our feet in the water and tried to plan. It was almost impossible to think coherently because of the toxic conditions of our bodies and the pain of the wounds, now that the anesthetic was beginning to wear off. Dan, Ginger said, we've got to get out of this country somehow, but how are we going to do it? I don't know, I replied. We can't carry our packs or even wear our gun belts without breaking some of these blisters. Even our feet are blistered, and we don't dare put on sandals, let alone hike. It's a hard week's traveling back to the village. Then Ginger said something that gave us an idea, as we turned over in our befuddled minds the few possibilities for action. We've got to stay here until these bites heal, but we can't stay in that camp. Oh, if we could only find an island. We started off stream in search of an island, but our progress was painfully slow. Each move had to be calculated in advance, so as not to brush against anything that might break a blister, and each movement made us wince with pain. Our nervous systems were so dulled by the poison that our arms and legs responded poorly to our efforts to use them, and our heads seemed three times larger than normal. We continued the search, however, until further progress became impossible. The way was blocked by falls. Discouraged by our failure, we made our way back to camp. The first thing that had to be done was to rid the tent and sleeping bag of the talajes. Ginger pulled the sleeping bag down to the creek and began to search them out and kill them, while I got the tent down to the water. Afterwards, we built a fire and made some coffee. Neither of us had any appetite for food. As we sipped the coffee in silence, both of us preoccupied with our problem, I was filled with admiration for Ginger's courage, for she had never once complained. This heartened me as well, for the situation was going to call for all the self-denial and determination that we had. We should have to guard not only ourselves, but each other as well against any possible chance of breaking a blister. 
If either one of us should stumble or slip against a rough surface, or even a twig, our chance of survival would be almost hopeless. The resultant running sores were focal points for infection. Ginger set down her cup and gazed at the widening rings of purple that were forming round each bite. It's a funny thing, she said, how our fears shift from one thing to another. In the beginning, I worried over what would happen if one of us should break a leg. That seemed to be the worst thing that could happen. If we survive this ordeal, I'll never be afraid of anything again. Yes, I agreed. We are so busy being afraid of what may happen that we seldom think about the real danger. From now on, let's forget what will happen to us if... Let's go downstream. There may be some place there we can find. Our search downstream was rewarded. A large, flat rock extending well out into the water could easily be converted into an island by a little digging on the mainland side. But there was another problem. Could we erect the tent on it to protect ourselves against the innumerable flying insects? It seemed possible that by taking our time and working slowly, we could build a platform of limbs and palm branches on which to set it. All day we worked at the task of finding and transporting the necessary materials. We had to watch every movement, weigh every step. Our heads pounded and ached until it seemed that our eyes would pop out of their sockets. Our bodies were bathed in perspiration, which in turn caused an intolerable itching. The purple bruises were now about three-quarters of an inch in diameter and almost covered us. By sundown, we had accomplished our purpose and had erected the mended tent on a small palm-covered platform where we would be safe from insects. Days of careful, methodical, and tortured existence followed. One of us always kept guard while the other slept, watching every movement of the sleeper that he might not break a blister by tossing turning, or scratching. We relieved the tedium by laughing at the restraints and compulsions of the situation. Every little movement was so fraught with meaning that we didn't dare even to slap at a mosquito. Our diet during the first period of our convalescence was composed of the reserve rations that we had brought along. We ate nothing but boiled rice, corn, and beans, but as the poison left our systems, we became ravenously hungry for fresh meat and hunted for wild turkey, wild chicken, and doves. There were no other animals in the canyon, since they cannot survive in Talaje country. The blisters gradually dried and healed. They left scabs which remained for some time longer, but we were able to travel in about two weeks. The last few days before our departure, we spent preparing food for the trail ahead. On one of the ridges above the canyon, I had shot a deer, and this gave us a much-needed supply of dried meat. We left that last fateful camp of Diaz's army with a new attitude. Our egotism was left behind, together with a goodly supply of overconfidence and self-assurance. Man may be lord of all he surveys in some places, but he isn't in the jungle. It is easy to see why races that have successfully maintained themselves in the equatorial jungles have never been individualists in the western meaning of the term, 
Only men who are group conscious can survive. Two days' journey from the Talahe camp brought us to the headwaters of the stream we had been following. We climbed the high ridge to the west and dropped down into a great valley. Fresh machete marks, which must have been made within a period of six months, filled us with curiosity. Carefully we followed the trail through the thick growth, looking for the stumps and blaze marks on the trees. But there was one thing about those blaze marks that filled us with astonishment. They all faced the trail. We looked at each other in amazement. We were following the trail of a greenhorn. But how had he come this far? An experienced traveler would have blazed the tree on both sides, so that the blazes could be seen going up or coming down the trail. And have you noticed how all the machete marks slant the same way? Ginger observed. Whoever went up the trail did not return this way. We were certain that it had been made by a white man because it led directly through stinging bushes that any native would have avoided. Our interest heightened as we followed this amateur's trail. Late in the afternoon it brought us to an extensive flat and to the banks of a river where we found a small thatched shelter. We approached it cautiously, but it was silent and deserted. We threw off our packs and prowled round, trying to read the story. It had been constructed during the present dry season by some one only slightly familiar with the jungle, for it was so close to the water's edge that it would have been carried away by high water. The thatching came all the way to the ground. No native would have done this, for it gave crawling things an opportunity to get into the thatching and drop on the occupant. The builder had some knowledge of jungle animals, however, for heavy tiger bars guarded both ends. We stepped inside. It was plainly the camp of a white man. He had built a rough wooden bunk in one corner. Pieces of equipment lay scattered on the floor. A rusty knife, fork, spoon, enameled plate, what was left of a pair of blankets, and a worn-out pair of hobnailed boots. Then we made a momentous discovery. In a mildewed pack under the bunk were a few cans of food. All of them were rusted through with the exception of one can of milk, which, though rusted all over, was still intact. This was a bonanza of the first order, the occasion for a fiesta. We decided to have it the following day, and in the meantime to clean out the hut, erect our tent in it, and see if we could find out more about its missing occupant. As we cleaned the hut, we examined every little clue that might show who the man was, why he had come here, and what had become of him. It was evident that he had not died near the hut, for his gun and machete were missing. After we had the place in order, we had a light meal and turned in, for we were very tired. About midnight I wakened out of a sound sleep startled by something but by what I did not know. I immediately woke Ginger, and together we listened. The only sound was the beat of heavy rain upon the thatching. There was nothing unusual in that, for this was the beginning of the rainy season. Nevertheless, something was decidedly wrong. We got up, dressed, and built a fire. 
My uneasy feeling persisted, although there was no logical explanation for it. So we strapped on our gun belts, stuffed our pockets with extra ammunition, and went out in the rain to look round. The only result was a good soaking. As I built up the fire to dry out our wet clothing, Ginger also became uneasy. I've got a hunch, she said, that we had better pack up and get out of here. That made it unanimous, and we began collecting our things. While we were taking the tent down, we heard a roar from up the river, followed by the sound of falling trees. Then we knew the crest of the first flood of the rainy season was on its way. We hastily gathered up what gear we could carry and stumbled along in the darkness towards a little hill that rose about fifty yards behind the hut. When we returned for the balance of the equipment, six inches of water swirled round the shelter. At last we stood in the rain on the little hill with all our possessions beside us, listening to the roar of the water and the thunderous crashing of the great trees. We both shivered a little as we thought of our near escape. "'Well, we at least have a can of milk,' Ginger said philosophically. "'Did you bring it?' I asked. "'Why, no,' she replied. "'I thought I saw you pick it up.' We had failed to bring our precious can of milk. Together we started off down the hill. Halfway to the hut, the water was already knee-deep. It was obvious that we couldn't reach it on foot. I was determined to have one last try for it, however. So telling Ginger to wait for me, I went back to the hill and secured the sixty-foot lariat. Working our way from tree to tree, we reached the little clearing round the hut. The angry waters were tearing its thatch away, but it still stood. I tied one end of the lariat round my waist, while Ginger fastened the other end to a stout sapling. At first she protested vigorously, telling me that I would be drowned, but she was tying the line round the tree as she talked. She wanted that can of milk as much as I did. Throwing my weight against the swirling water, I worked upstream, seeking what little shelter the trees offered. A sharp tug on the rope soon indicated that I had reached the end of the line. With a silent prayer that the rope would be long enough, I swung out in an arc towards the hut. The water knocked me off my feet, and I just managed to grab one of the tiger bars. The hut shook uneasily as I reached inside and groped round in the bunk for the can. My hand closed round its rusted surface, and I had only time to turn and shout to Ginger to pull on the line before the shelter gave way and whirled off down the stream. I hung on to the can as the rush of water washed me into the undergrowth at the edge of the clearing, where I managed to regain my footing. While Ginger tugged on the rope, I worked my way along by pulling on the bushes. Even with her help, it was all I could do to work my way against the strong current to where she stood in water almost to her armpits. Together we fought the storm and regained the safety of the hillside. As we sat in the rain, trying to catch our breath, Ginger said, I wonder sometimes if we have good sense. Here we are, a hundred miles from nowhere, and we risk our necks for a can of milk. It sounds foolish. Well, men risk their necks for gold, I said defensively, and right now I would rather have this can of milk, wouldn't you? A fire seemed highly desirable at this point, so we began to scout round for firewood. Very quickly we found that we were not the only occupants of the little hill. 
All the small walking and crawling things in the valley were sharing it with us. It was anything but pleasant to feel around in the darkness for wood, but at last we found a small log, and cutting off a section of it, dragged it back to camp. We made a shelter of the tent, and, crawling under it, set about the task of chopping in the dark without cutting off our fingers. Everything was too saturated for us to light a fire in the usual way, so we made a fire block. The wet wood was trimmed off the outside of the log to its dry center. Then, while Ginger made a spindle and bow, I fashioned the friction block and scraped enough wood fiber for tinder. Soon we were sitting round a cheerful fire and beginning to enjoy ourselves. At daylight we found a more comfortable campsite upstream. There we dried out our bedraggled equipment and prepared a banquet with the can of milk for the pièce de résistance. The menu was broiled breast of turkey, turkey stew, and cream flavored with coffee. For three more days we toiled up this canyon, crossing and recrossing the swollen river. There were many moments of suspense as we made our way along precipitous rock ledges or climbed the steep mountain sides when falls and rapids made progress below impossible. This was virgin country, for there were no indications that anyone had ever been here before. On the fourth day, we arrived at a park-like flat shaded by giant trees. Long vines trailed along the ground from the branches overhead, and birds with gorgeous plumage flew among the foliage. The scene resembled an exotic motion picture setting for Tarzan of the Apes. The thought must have occurred to Ginger the moment she saw it, for she dropped her pack and ran across the clearing, shouting, I'm Tarzan! She grabbed one of the trailing lianas and took off in a beautiful ape-man swing. The result of this maneuver in no way resembled Johnny Weissmuller's dashing progress from tree to tree. There was a crackling of dead wood as she landed in a heap with the vine coiled over her head. I howled with laughter at her expression of disgust as she crawled out from beneath the tangled debris. I never did like Tarzan anyway, she sputtered. Though the place proved disappointing as a practice ground for ape-man activities, it was an ideal base camp. We spent ten days here, building a substantial shelter, well above the high water mark of the river, and preparing food for our journey into the interior. There was an enchantment about the place that grew with each day. Great banyan and leche maria trees spread canopied branches overhead. Fern palms and many varieties of broad-leaved plants edged the clearing on three sides. On the open side, the river flowed through a lane of fantastic tropic vegetation. The jungle and the river formed an amphitheater of green against whose somber background the brilliant flowers, birds, and butterflies stood out in high relief. When the hut was completed, we fastened over the door with much ceremony a carved sign reading, Base Camp. The next thing was to secure the food supply. We smoked and dried venison and turkey and collected and prepared wild coffee 
yucca roots, and nuts from the coquito palm. This palm is probably man's best friend in the higher jungle country. It is a small tree with a slender bole which grows only in shaded sections and is well protected by thorns. The nuts hang in small thorny clusters among the lower branches and are about the size of walnuts. The meat tastes like a cocoa nut and is very oily. The creamy white blossoms, which grow in compact clusters, resemble broccoli and are good to eat. The heart of the palm is also edible and tastes like cabbage. The nuts are dried and the oil is rendered out for cooking. Its branches make excellent thatching for huts. Base camp was to be a storehouse for our extra rations, filled with enough corn, beans, and rice to see us out of the country in the event of an accident or illness. By making horseshoe packs out of the tent and sleeping bag, we could also leave one of the knapsacks behind. In this, we left our native clothes, extra sandals, traveling papers, exposed films, and enough food for an emergency. To prevent animals and insects from reaching the stores, we took one of Ginger's kettle chains and suspended it in the smoke of the fire until it was covered with creosote. Then we hung the pack sack from one of the rafters with it. As an added precaution, we kept a smudge fire burning when we were not using the hut until even the thatching had a liberal coating of creosote. In addition to these physical preparations, we gave careful thought to the nature of the country before us. This territory could not be traversed in the leisurely fashion of the men who walk, clad in full tropical regalia, through the park-like avenues of motion picture sets. There were no trails, except game trails, and these were so low that one had to bend almost double to negotiate them. The ground was thickly covered with rotting debris and undergrowth, the home of crawling pests. In order to cut a path through this solid mass of vegetation, the machete must be razor keen. A dull blade jars the growth overhead and sends cascades of stinging insects down one's neck. Each plant has a method of protection that can spell disaster to the unwary. Neither is the physical labor of swinging a machete hour after hour anything to discount. There is a technique to this. Two slashes cut off the growth just above the ground, then two more strokes high above the head and as far in front of as you can drop the whole tangled mass of vegetation into the trail below. The dense wall of green prevents your kicking this aside, so it is necessary to walk over it. As a result, your feet seldom touch the ground. Frequent stops must be made at regular intervals to pick off the accumulation of insects, which seem well supplied with grappling hooks. In addition, there are hundreds of varieties of fungus growths, molds, bacteria, and parasites. Some are harmful. Others are not, but they all play a definite part in the scheme of things. Many have specialized functions which lay the groundwork for the whole vast, intricate panorama of jungle life. The termites ceaselessly clean up fallen trees and pave the way for new growth. 
Some of them are aided by minute living organisms. One species of termite eats the wood, which is re-eaten by a protozoa, which lives in the termite's stomach. The termite does not subsist on the original wood pulp, but on the excretions of the protozoa. The soil is in turn fertilized by the excrement of the termite. Another little insect which assists the termite bores in underneath the bark of the fallen tree and there deposits its eggs with the spores of a tiny fungus growth. By the time the eggs have hatched, the fungus, which grows in the form of minute asparagus, is well established. The fungus feeds upon the cells of the wood and the young insects feed upon the asparagus, much as a cow would feed upon alfalfa. We wondered what would happen if the delicate equilibrium between the forces of growth and destruction were thrown out of balance in any way. Besides the multiplicity of living forms round us, we felt small and insignificant. Our only chance of being able to enjoy the jungle's prodigality and splendor depended upon our ability to fit ourselves into its complicated life pattern. This was as much a mental operation as it was a physical adaptation. Since bodily comfort was out of the question, its importance had to be discounted. It was possible by an effort of will not to think continuously of our bruises, abrasions, and bites. Otherwise, the jungle would soon have made us both into hypochondriacs. One of the things that we found reinforced our morale was our personal appearance. Ever since leaving the Talahe camp, we had been in constant pain and had grown careless. Ginger had let her hair grow down over her forehead as a protection against insects, and I had let my whiskers grow for the same reason. We decided to make a right-about face. From then on, we both groomed ourselves to the limits of our slender resources. The result was an increased sense of well-being, which more than repaid us for the effort. One night, shortly before we left base camp, Ginger said, Dan, I wonder if we aren't going to have a difficult time fitting into civilization when we return home. If it's all right with you, I'd like to go back for a couple of months after we have finished our trip. If we don't like it, we can start out again. In a sense, I was also curious, but I felt that I knew what the answer would be. Men who have left cities for any length of time are seldom happy in them again. At last we were off, after making a careful last-minute recheck of all our supplies and equipment. Ahead of us loomed a great canyon, and we set our course in its direction. Once on the trail, we fought for every inch of ground that we gained. The southeast course of the river led us for days through a mighty gorge flanked by sheer limestone cliffs. Then it changed its direction and turned at a sharp right angle to plow through a great crevasse, a fault line in a schist formation. Emerging to follow again its channel along the base of towering limestone escarpments. Tributary rivers plunged over the cliffs in vertical, breathtaking cataracts,
into deep pools cut out of the solid rock of the river bed below. The roar of the water echoed back and forth between the gigantic-sounding boards of the canyon's walls until our ears were deafened. Progress up the canyon was slow and difficult. There were days when we advanced only a mile or two, although we traveled many miles to gain that slight distance. Falls blocked our way in many places, and we were forced to scale the slippery, water-worn surfaces that flanked them by constructing ladders of long poles lashed together with tough vines. At other times it was necessary to climb the steep sides of the canyon. Going up was not so difficult as coming down. To get back to the canyon floor, we braided long ropes of bejuco, fastened them to trees or round a rock on the canyon's rim, and lowered ourselves over the cliffs that formed its sides. Where the overhanging walls enclosed deep pools, we constructed rafts from saplings lashed together with vines and pulled ourselves past the barrier. Some nights we spent in caves. Other nights we slept among huge piles of boulders. Our bodies became battered and bruised from rough treatment. But the satisfaction we achieved was worth the price. Each handicap that we were able to overcome represented more than a physical triumph over environment. Without question, we gained a certain psychological freedom that widened the radius of our ability to act, a release from the self-imposed limitations of fear and doubt. At last, we emerged upon a second flat, or mesa. It was not as large as the one at base camp, but it more than made up in color and variety what it lacked in size. Here, owing to the higher elevation, the bird and insect life, as well as the vegetation, differed from that below. The flowering plants, and notably the insects, were of brilliant and more vivid hues. Even the mosquitoes were a bright gunmetal blue. Unfortunately, we are not entomologists and can describe only in non-technical terms the appearance of some of these extraordinary insects. Many of them may be unknown to science, for we saw them only in the highlands. There was one, perhaps an inch in length, shaped like a shield, whose back had an intricate design in powder blue and orange. Another, which we called the gold bug, was an ovoid, about an inch and a quarter long. It was like an iridescent jewel, with opalescent tints superimposed upon a background of glittering copperish gold. There was a long, slender, joined insect of a beautiful translucent grass green, which made its home among grasses so similar in construction to itself that it was almost impossible to detect its presence unless it moved. It was not more than a quarter of an inch in diameter, but it was four inches long. One bug, which lived among fallen leaves, hopped instead of walked. Since it looked exactly like a fallen leaf in shape, color, and size, it could be detected only by accident. Grasshoppers were gaily dressed in green, 
red and black, and brown and red. An insect similar to a grasshopper in its general appearance, although fully two inches long, had a dark brown body and wings, and under wings of fine, transparent, veined red. There were insects that looked like bits of fallen bark. As a general rule, all of them blended perfectly with their environment. The butterflies were miracles of protective coloration as well as beauty, and the orchids, not to be outdone, resembled butterflies. The most gorgeous of the butterflies dwelt in the deeper jungle. It was an ultramarine blue with a delicate Persian-like scroll work on the underside of its wings. There were black butterflies with tailed hind wings, which seemed to be made of cut black velvet trimmed with red. There were white, apple green, gold, orange, yellow, and blue butterflies, and others in all combinations of these colors. There was so much that was new to us that we hiked round a bit before we made a camp on a beautiful site near the river. It was time for supper, and while Ginger collected twigs for a fire, I went out to gather larger wood. I had gone a short distance when I heard the sound of a breaking limb and turned in time to see Ginger whirl and draw her gun. I reached for the luger and peered into the underbrush. "'What's the matter?' I called. "'Someone just hit me on the head,' she answered. "'I thought a native had sneaked up behind me.' Just as I finished assuring her that she must have been mistaken, another stick hurtled through the air and landed at her feet. We looked up into the trees and into the face of a spider monkey who was swinging by his tail and grimacing at us. In our relief, we teased the little fellow by making faces and jabbering at him. The monkey, however, didn't like our mockery and began to emit ear-splitting shrieks as he jumped up and down on a limb, showering us with twigs, leaves, and branches. In a moment, monkeys from far and near took up his refrain. The jungle reverberated with their angry cries. Suddenly they began to converge on our campsite from all directions, rushing to the defense of their brother. We were unfamiliar with the habits of spider monkeys, or we would have been more cautious. As it was, they sprayed us thoroughly before we could seek the safety of the river. We took a good scrub down in the stream and decided to call the place Monkeyville, although Ginger held out quite a while for Rainville, which was a pretty way of saying it. We discovered, however, that if we left the monkeys alone, they behaved decently. We constructed another thatched hut in Monkeyville and collected more food for the trail. A preliminary survey indicated that the route ahead would be even more difficult to negotiate. In hopes of finding an easier passage into the interior, we climbed to the summit of a gray peak. From this vantage point, we discovered that the whole country was laid out in a series of great stair steps, set at an angle. Some of the cliffs on the face of the steps appeared to be a thousand feet high. There was no route open to us except to the canyon, however. For our next goal, we decided on a great limestone half-dome in the far distance. Beyond the dome, the appearance of the country seemed to change. 
Four days of traveling brought us to the base of the dome. We made camp near its foot on the opposite side of the river. As we explored the territory nearby, we came to the entrance of a limestone cave. Since caves had always been our special weakness, we decided to investigate this one. Upon a ridge we secured some pitch pine for torches. We split the wood into strips about four feet long and bound them together. One such torch will last over half an hour. Armed with as many as we could carry, we set out to explore the cavern. None of the caves we had seen during our trip had prepared us for the beauty of this one. We spent several hours on our first visit, wandering in the great room near its entrance, gazing at the fantastic forms and colorations. The torches flickered upon the glistening surfaces of the gigantic stalactites that hung from the ceiling. The years that went into the creation of the great stalagmites, rising from its floor, stunned the imagination. On our next visit, loaded with armfuls of torches, we started out to explore its labyrinthine passages. One great room opened into another, equally dazzling in the variety and beauty of its formations. There were enormous altars, glittering icebergs, Chinese pagodas, alabaster urns, pipe organs no building made by man could house, and crystal chandeliers weighing tons, whose diamond facets shimmered in the light. We soon realized that it would take weeks to survey the cavern more than casually, so we decided to retrace our steps. It was round noon when we began the return journey, which we estimated would take about two hours. Hunger speeded our footsteps as we went along. As hours passed and no glimmer of light revealed the entrance, it was obvious that somewhere we had turned in the wrong direction. But when? Had the mistake occurred at the outset? It was also obvious that the seepage of water which had deposited the lime on the stalactites for at least 150 million years, had in all probability undermined an area many square miles in extent. The only thing to do was to follow the pitch pine droppings back to the place from which we had started the return journey, and to leave other markers as we went along, so that we would not follow this passage a second time. We hoped that once back at the starting point we could follow the droppings that we had left as we came in. There were enough torches left to last for about ten hours. It was one of the longest days either of us ever spent, but luck at last rewarded our efforts. We reached the entrance about midnight and once again drew deep breaths of fresh air. Back in camp and hungry as bears, we sat round the fire enjoying some toasted jerky and parched yucca roots. Ginger said speculatively, I'll bet there's gold in that cave. Sure there is, I agreed jokingly. Maybe a million or two. She wanted to do a little panning, however, so the next morning we went back armed with our frying pan, plenty of torches, and a cup to carry the gold in. Neither of us took the matter seriously and jested about the business as we filled the pan with gravel and settled ourselves near one of the many pools in the floor. As we worked the gravel off, we were amazed at the amount of black sand in the pan. Amazed, however, does not do justice to our feelings 
when we saw by the aid of the torchlight the glistening yellow metal that hung back in the bottom of the pan. It must be iron pyrites, I said. There couldn't be that much gold in one little pan of gravel. We scraped the metal into the cup and continued panning for several hours. Then we carried the results of our efforts out into the daylight. There was no mistake about it. It was gold. Yet somehow the discovery didn't excite us as it might have under different circumstances. We had done without money for so long that it had lost most of its importance. Not until that moment, perhaps, were we conscious of what this country had done to us. To live in it, we had had to discard old values and acquire others. The fascination and mystery of the country itself overshadowed and minimized the discovery of gold. That night round the fire we discussed the situation. Did we want to abandon the trip and become miners? If so, we ought to make up our minds to do it properly. It was slow, tedious work to extract the metal by using our mess kit pans for gold pans. The thing to do was to cut timber, construct a sluice box, and build a drag to haul the gravel to the stream. It would preclude doing anything else for a long time, except hunt for food. The only thing we needed money for in the near future was to buy our passage home from Panama, if we ever got there. So we decided to continue with the mess kit pan, until we had at least that much gold. Later on, after the present trip was over, we could always return and engage in serious mining if we wanted to. Our lives for the next two weeks became a routine of foraging, cooking, cutting pitch pine, and panning. Each afternoon we emerged from our treasure cave, covered from head to toe with the soot of our torches. We relieved the monotony by a race to see who could find the biggest nugget first. Ginger walked off with the honors by finding a nugget as big as her thumbnail. We often stopped to examine some particularly lovely piece of gold. The cave itself was limestone, but on one side the schist cut into it. The gold we were panning had apparently been washed directly out of the formation and had never been rolled or carried any distance by water. Ginger found a beautiful piece that resembled German script. I discovered one in the form of a pointing hand. One day, Ginger said, If you think we have enough money to pay our passage home, let's quit and go exploring. From now on, we can consider ourselves millionaires anyway. We've got a bank full of gold, and I'd like to see anyone try and find it. So we stopped, buried what metal we had, and drew a complicated map of its location. After a week to replenish our food supply, we were again ready to be off. If the road to Monkeyville had seemed arduous and difficult while we toiled over it, in retrospect it became an ideal highway, for the country above the dome was broken and upended, and the river followed a tortuous course through the gigantic strata of broken limestone and schist. In places, the schist was shot through with quartz stringers. In others, the formation was broken by hard rock. From the many evidences of mineral wealth, it would have been a prospector's paradise. We clawed and scrambled up the canyon for four days. Then the way became impassable. The canyon narrowed down to a deep gorge through which the water roared and tumbled. We spent two days trying to find a way over the cliffs to the north before we abandoned the idea. 
Only a human fly could have found toeholds on their sheer vertical faces. A ridge to the south offered a possible route past the unscalable limestone barriers, and we followed along its crest into higher country. Now we traveled along a succession of pine-covered ridges. There was little game, and we lived on our meager supply of corn and beans. Unable to find any streams, we secured our water by spreading out the tent to catch the rain when it rained. When it failed to rain, we shook the dew from the undergrowth and bushes on to the tent. This was vile-tasting stuff, but it was wet. Three days of hard climbing brought us at last to the summit of a high peak. The panorama which spread out below and before us was breathtaking. To the east we could see for the first time the high plateau that we were attempting to reach. Great waterfalls tumbled down the sheer cliffs that formed its sides. Between us and that gigantic butte lay a torn, twisted country that looked as though no man could defy its impregnability. It seemed absolutely impassable. But if there was ever a place to which a remnant of a conquered race might go to seek sanctuary, that plateau was assuredly the spot. We sat on a huge granite boulder and gazed long and speculatively at those badlands through which we would have to find a way. Ginger sighed as she said, I don't see how we can do it, but how the place matches the stories about it. It's certainly forbidding enough. There seemed only one thing to do, and that was to go ahead and trust to our luck and ingenuity to see us through. We did exactly that, bareheaded and almost bare-skinned, for our clothes were threadbare. We toiled across the rocky ground. The tropic sun beat down unmercifully, burning our skins a deep mahogany. The rarefied atmosphere at that high altitude had us gasping for breath. The small amount of food and water that we consumed fell far short of supplying our overtaxed bodies. Though our feet were tough and calloused, the sharp flint-like rocks cut into our flesh through the holes in our native sandals. To complete our ruin, the thorny bushes tore away our few remnants of clothes. Under these conditions, traveling became impossible, and we began to look for a place where we could rest a while and repair the damage. We finally worked our way across a great limestone stair-step towards the rim of a deep canyon. Below, a cascading stream was surrounded by lush tropic vegetation. After a tedious day of lowering ourselves down precipitous cliffs and scrambling along dangerously narrow ledges, we reached bottom. Here the jungle's cupboard was wide open. Game was plentiful. Wild fruits and edible plants grew everywhere. We named the place Paradise Valley. After a day's rest, we put up a shelter and replenished our supply of food and clothing. A word seems in order here about foraging in the jungle. Notwithstanding the plentitude of material, this is not altogether simple. Had we been forced to secure food in Paradise Valley at the outset of our trip, we should probably have starved to death. Fruits, nuts, and berries do not grow in plain sight on every bush. Most of them are hidden or grow in inaccessible places, 
It is seldom advisable to climb trees, for they are alive with ants. But a forked stick fastened to a long pole, or a sharpened boomerang, will knock the fruit down. There is stiff competition among the birds and monkeys for the ripened fruit, so it must be picked before it attracts their attention and allowed to ripen in camp. In hunting, it is safe to say that ten animals see you for every one that you see. The odds are always against the hunter, owing to the animal's keener sense of hearing, sight, and smell. Securing food in the jungle soon banishes from your mind the idea that the world owes you a living. Here, as elsewhere, the ratio of return is about equal to the amount of industry and energy you are willing to spend. You can starve or live in comparative luxury. Three deer supplied us with meat, which we cut into thin strips and hung over racks near a smoky fire to dry. The hides we buried in damp earth, allowing them to rot just enough so that the hair could be easily scraped off. Rendering out the marrow of the leg bones gave us a gun oil, which, in our opinion, is far superior to any commercial product available. The sinews and intestines were cleaned and cured to use as lashings. While the hides were curing, we collected large quantities of coquito palm nuts, dye wood, and various barks that contained tannic acid, also gum from the pitch pines, and the fruit and roots that we needed for food. Then Ginger busied herself drying and preparing the yucca roots, guavas, wild figs, zapotes, and a little berry similar to the elderberry, while I tanned the hides. The hides were first trimmed, then given a good scraping to remove any fat and membrane adhering to the inside, as well as to remove the hair from the outside. Then they were dipped alternately in strong solutions made from dye wood and bark, and finally rubbed with a mixture of ashes and clay. This is not the best method of tanning hides, but it does well enough when one is in a hurry. This process completed, the hides were placed in the sun and saturated with a dressing made from coquito oil, resin, and deer fat. This was the tedious part of the job and required hours of rubbing, but when it was finished the hides were soft and pliable and quite waterproof. Now the camp was turned into a tailor shop. Ginger cut and fitted a short skirt for herself, and I made a pair of shorts. When the pieces were cut and ready to sew, we placed the seams side by side and cut a series of small holes directly opposite each other all the way down the seam. The pieces were then laced together with thongs made from the leftover scraps of leather. It is possible to cut a thong six or eight feet long from a small piece of leather by starting to cut it at the outer edge, cutting round and round towards the center to form a spiral. Our footwear was easy to make, being merely a flat piece cut to fit the foot and fitted with lashings to tie round the heel and over the toe. Our work was finally finished, and we were eager to push on, but the only way open to us lay up the canyon, for we could not scale the cliffs, even though we had come down them. For two days we traveled pleasantly along the banks of the stream, 
until the thousand-foot canyon walls began to close in to form a narrow gorge. We hunted in vain for a way over these walls to the pine ridge above. Although it filled us with misgiving, there was nothing to do but tackle the gorge. The river seemed to be jealous of every foot of space between its great stone ramparts. We hugged the face of the cliffs to avoid being swept off our feet by the swift current. Sometimes the way led us through little caves made by old watercourses, sometimes over huge boulders where we slipped and slid over the mossy, water-worn surfaces. The afternoon of the second day found us at the end of the gorge in a box canyon with a narrow opening through which the river plunged in a great cataract. The overhanging walls seemed about to topple down on us, we scanned them carefully for any possible means of egress. To one side, a high waterfall tumbled down into a deep pool. The formation near the top was broken into ledges. That gave us an idea, and we retraced our steps down the canyon to see if there was a ledge that we could climb to, and from which we might reach the broken formation. Finding a narrow ledge that might be excuse me, negotiated with extreme caution, we worked our way along the cliff in the direction of the waterfall. When we reached a position above the pool, we were astonished to see what looked like a hewn pathway cut into the face of the rock, which led to the top of the falls. Whether it had been cut by the river during the ages when the canyon was in the process of formation, or made by men, it was impossible to tell but after all our difficult climbing, it looked like an easy ascent. I said to Ginger as I stepped on out, it's going to be a cinch to reach the top now. Then, for no reason at all, I slipped, lost my balance, and plunged down into the pool some twenty feet below. Weighted down by my pack and gun belt, I was being carried swiftly towards the rapids at the foot of the pool, when Ginger threw me one end of the lariat. With her aid, I managed to scramble to safety. We spread out the sodden contents of my back on some boulders to dry, and again started up the trail. Although the way was not difficult, we took no chances this time, and carefully helped each other over the rough spots. Nearing the top of the falls, we heard an angry warning hiss. Somewhere on the ledge, just above our heads, a rattler lay concealed. I tried to dislodge the snake by shooting at it, but the bullets ricocheted harmlessly off the intervening ledge. We retreated to hold counsel. This was the only possible course to the Great Plateau, by now we referred to it in capitals, and the hour was late and there was no place to camp in the gorge. What to do? I swam across the upper end of the pool, my purpose being to shoot the rattler from the other side. However, it was not possible to get high enough to see it. Abandoning the idea of leaving the gorge, that night we built a fire on a boulder where Ginger prepared supper. Since there was no place to set the tent up, we picked out the biggest, softest, flattest rock to sleep on. Night came swiftly in the gloomy canyon, bringing with it an almost overpowering sense of imminent danger. We sat round the fire and talked of the long series of coincidences that had blocked our progress in this forbidden land. 
If the Indians' guardian spirits had actually existed, they could hardly have done a better job of trying to keep us out. True, we had survived the Talajes, the flood, the cliffs, and a lot of other things, but could we indefinitely continue to do so? Even the snake on the ledge began to assume an illogical importance. I undoubtedly had tumbled into the pool because I had been careless and overconfident. The Talajes had bitten us because we had not been careful enough to avoid tearing the tent. Each incident had been the result of our own failure or foolhardiness. Nevertheless, we were unable wholly to overcome the impact of the country's history. Throughout the night, we frequently wakened to sit up and talk about what lay over that barrier of limestone guarded by the rattler. The next morning, we cautiously approached the place where the snake had been, but no warning rattle greeted us. I tossed a small rock into the alcove where it had been lodged. There was no answering hiss. The way was clear. A wide valley which opened out above the falls seemed to offer fair opportunities for traveling, at least for a few miles. We tramped along until nearly noon, when the appearance of the sky heralded a coming storm. As the thunderheads began piling up, we made camp near a small side stream. Insects swarmed about us in clouds, and they all, as they always do before a midday tropical storm. Directly it begins to rain, they take shelter beneath the leaves, but their idea seems to be to make hay while the sun shines, and their onslaughts on other animals are particularly vicious at this time. We retreated to the shelter of the tent to eat our meal. The cloud formations that precede a storm in these highlands are most spectacular. They are great, piled-up, tower-like structures, their undersides inky black, their upper portions snowy white. Sometimes, towards evening, the white cloud masses are brilliantly colored by the sun's rays. The clouds release their moisture without any preliminary drizzle. Just before the solid sheets of water descend, the jungle becomes silent. And then comes the deluge. Within a few minutes, little streams become torrents. All other sounds are blotted out by the roar of the water. The next day, we marched along the valley until we came to a fork in the stream. Since it was necessary to avoid the swollen watercourses, we started up the ridge that divided them at the fork. Two days of hard climbing along its crest brought us to where we could at last obtain a clear view of the Great Plateau. The country ahead was rumpled and broken, as though a giant's hand had crumpled it. But with the coming of the rains, our last chance to retreat had been cut off. No one could travel up those canyons or along the stream beds until the next dry season. Several days of travel over the wet, uneven terrain finally brought us to the sheer cliffs that formed the base of the plateau. There was no way that we could see to scale them. Our food supply was almost exhausted, for there had been no game along the arid, rocky pine ridges that we had come across. The only thing to do was to search along the foot of the cliffs for some way up. After two days of hunting, we found a cleavage in the rock wall that looked as though at one time it had been a watercourse, 
It seemed to be a fault in the formation that had been widened by erosion. It might formerly have been a cave which had collapsed, for its floor was littered with big limestone blocks. There was some water, but it was not a stream. It would run along for perhaps fifty feet to disappear into one of the many depressions in the stream bed where it ran underground. Sometimes we were unable to see the sky because of the overhanging walls from which big stalactites hung. In many places there were caverns high above our heads, possibly eroded by the wind. The passage was an altogether strange and eerie place. We were more than glad to be done with it when we finally emerged on the plateau itself. We stood on the rim of a great basin, bounded on three sides by jagged peaks. It spread out like a many-colored carpet, a hundred brilliant hues, woven into its background of rain-washed green. Each detail of far-off peak and vivid flowering tree was sharply etched in the clear mountain air. It was the loveliest place we had seen on earth. How much of our reaction to the surroundings was based upon the stories we had heard about it, it is hard to say. Had we stumbled upon it accidentally, knowing nothing of its legendary import, we should probably have been aware only of its unusual beauty. But as it was, the very air seemed pregnant with mystery. Unconsciously, we lowered our voices or lapsed into silence, while cutting our way through the gloom of the thick undergrowth. The place had an aura, born of our imagination perhaps, of things unseen, but seeing. We had a sense of being trespassers, who might be rudely shown the door. It was uncanny, and we did our best to dismiss the haunted feeling that the place evoked, and for which there was no basis in fact. The undergrowth became sparser after perhaps a mile. Great trees began forming a canopy overhead. Then off to the right we glimpsed a sight that stopped us. Three immense vine-covered pyramidal mounds stood like sentinels under blankets of green foliage. When we reached the first one, I began to cut away the tangled vines preparatory to scraping off the humus so that we could determine whether the pyramids were made of cut stones. Suddenly, we were aware of the absolute silence that had fallen over the jungle. All the usual small sounds had ceased. I stopped, and we looked at each other. Then, simultaneously, we backed away from the pyramid and stood motionless, listening. But there was nothing. A silence so profound gripped the jungle that we could hear the blood pounding in our ears. It was as though we had been plunged into a void, some vacuum insulated against all sound waves. Ginger shivered apprehensively. Dan, let's wait until we become better acquainted with this place before we begin digging into things, she urged. I agreed, but I was certainly puzzled about what was happening to us. Either we were becoming the victims of self-induced hallucinations, or there was some external factor in operation of which we knew nothing. I have no explanations to offer for this phenomenon, or for what happened later. 
I am not a metaphysician, nor do I believe in the supernatural, but there are plenty of things in this country to give pause to even a hard-headed realist. We decided to wait. A game trail seemed to lead towards the center of the plateau, and we hoped to a stream. It was late afternoon and time to think about a place in which to set up camp. Our journey was interrupted by a wide black line which moved slowly across the trail, an army of black ants on the march. When we cautiously approached the line, a company of warrior ants who were flanking the main body of marchers swarmed out to meet us. We beat a hasty retreat. It was impossible, even with a good running start, to jump over them. They were fascinating to watch, and we spent over an hour observing the well-organized, compact body of marchers. These ants are probably the most intelligent insects in the jungle. Before the colony migrates, an advanced detail of engineers goes ahead to clear the way, build bridges, and scout the trail. When the ants are on the march, a company of warriors, led by a captain, heads the column. Behind them, flanked by other fighting ants, march the carriers in orderly procession. Leaders are distributed among the carriers, their job being to keep the burden bearers in order and to help them overcome difficult places. If one of the heavily laden carriers becomes stalled, its leader immediately runs up to assist it over the difficulty. If at times the carrier seems to lag, the leader urges it along by giving it a nip on its hindquarters. In the center of the column, well protected by warriors with immense jaws, march the royalty, the queen, and her drones. The ants vary in size according to their duties. The warriors have large heads with great jaws. The cutters, whose work consists of climbing trees and shearing off the foliage, are equipped with long scissor-like jaws. The carriers have small heads and strong stout legs. There were also a number of smaller ants who were probably domestic servants and who took care of the storage and preservation of food in the castle. The leaders or captains were well-proportioned ants of a lighter color than the various groups of workers. Their job is purely executive. They just boss. Much as we hated to interrupt their progress, we had to be on our way. Nowhere, though we looked up and down the trail, was it possible to cross. Each time that we approached too near to the army, we were driven back by the warriors. Fire was the only thing that would stop them. We built one of long sticks and tossed these faggots in a line across the column so that they formed a burning bridge. Thousands of ants swarmed round the blazing sticks, but the heat kept them back. By moving quickly and stepping directly upon the burning sticks, we managed to make a flying dash across the bewildered army. But for all our strategy and fast footwork, we picked up a few ants en route who inflicted painful stings. Before evening, we arrived at the banks of a little stream and following its course, found a beautiful campsite. Great trees and feathery palms shaded a white sand beach beside the water. Here we planned to build a hut near a deep 
pool that offered an ideal place to bathe. There was a dreamlike quality about the little beach that charmed us both. Experts by now at erecting thatched huts, we built a good substantial shelter well off the ground and guarded the entrance with heavy tiger bars. In one corner, we built a raised platform, padded it well with palm leaves, and set up the tent on it. These precautions, we felt, should discourage talajes, tigers, or any other jungle menace. As soon as we had time to become acquainted with our surroundings, we found an abundance of food. Besides several varieties of palms, there were guavas, avocados, plums, figs, breadfruit, yucca roots, and wild coffee. In addition to the common birds, such as mountain pigeon, wild chickens, turkey, and pavo, there were numbers of edible birds that we had never seen before. The trees harbored their usual quotas of chattering spider monkeys, parrots, parakeets, and other gorgeously dressed birds. It seemed to us that there were more varieties here than anywhere else. After completing the hut, we cut trails to various points on the plateau so that we could hunt without disturbing the birds and animals round the camp. While cutting up the creek about a mile away, we came upon huge three-toed tracks in the sand. The round imprints were about the size of a dinner plate. The tracks were so deep that the animal who had made them must have weighed a, nearly a ton at least. We recalled the tall tales we had heard from the natives about strange beasts that inhabited the spirit land. Could this be a confirmation of one of those yarns? Its spore led us into a clump of coquito palms, where the animal had stopped to eat some of the nuts. We were relieved to find that it was a vegetarian, but its size still alarmed us, for the large branches it had stopped, stepped on were crushed and forced into the soil. The tracks finally came out on a well-beaten trail, which in turn led into a cane break. There we stopped, for the trail now became a low tunnel in the thickly meshed cane. This doesn't look so good, I said. We had a choice of going into the tunnel or waiting for the animal to come out. We decided to wait. After an hour, we became impatient. Was it never going to come out? What do you say? Shall we go in a little ways? Ginger said she was game if I was. So we checked over the extra clips of ammunition, got out the guns, and crawled through the entrance. The dark tunnel was not an attractive place to be caught in. It was very low in proportion to its width of about five feet. The animal which used the passage was approximately the same size, for the cane was worn smooth and polished from its passing. The ground was as hard-packed as cement. A bend in the tunnel cut off the view a short distance from the entrance. We decided to crawl to the bend, but after rounding it, we were no better off, since another turn still obstructed the view. Screwing up our courage... 
We crawled a little further, wondering what we'd do if we heard the animal coming towards us. Finally, the tunnel opened out into a clearing in the center of the break. On the far side stood the animal we had come to see. A pair of small, sleepy eyes peered at us from the head of a moth-eaten burrow. He looked like a hog whose metamorphosis into an elephant has been arrested halfway. A forlorn, abortive attempt to grow a trunk hung down over its mouth. Its high hindquarters sloped forward to low shoulders. Nature had certainly been confused in her purpose when she designed that monstrosity. I carefully aimed the luger. In case it decided to charge, I'd get it first. Ginger tugged at my elbow. Don't shoot, Dan. That funny face looks just like the burrow we had at Escondido. So we sat on our haunches and stared, and the strange beast stared back at us. But it seemed best to leave before it changed its peaceful intentions. We backed slowly into the tunnel, and then turned and ran as fast as we could on all fours. We weren't taking any chances on how fast that 2,000-pound monstrosity could run. Out through the entrance, we dashed full speed ahead and kept on going until we reached a large tree. We peered out from behind it to see if we were being pursued, but the animal had apparently considered us beneath its notice and remained in the clearing. On the way back to camp, we decided to call it Molly, in memory of the old burrow we had liked so well in Puerto Escondido. Molly, we found out later, was not a survival from the age of dinosaurs. We had made the acquaintance of the Central American Taper. It was fortunate for Molly that we were unacquainted with the bad reputation that the director of the San Diego Zoo gave to tapirs, for he came right into camp on numerous occasions and even ate the washing off the clothesline. The next day, in the hope of discovering its source, we followed the stream to where it entered a canyon between low hills. There we left it and began cutting a way towards the top of the hills. Within a short distance of the stream, we came upon an ancient roadway that led up the canyon. Parts of it were visible, but in many places it was completely eroded and in others covered by small landslides. It was about ten feet wide and well paved with large cobblestones. We were thrilled with the possibilities it suggested. It obviously connected that part of the plateau where we had seen the first three mounds with perhaps a higher mesa which lay beyond the intervening hills. We decided to turn back and see where the road came from before going ahead and finding out where it led. But to our great disappointment, we soon lost it entirely. The ground was so thickly covered with humus that nothing could be seen. The worst thunderstorm that we had ever experienced occurred that night. The thunder shook the hut, and the lightning was almost continuous. The periods of light far exceeded the periods of darkness. It seemed unlikely that the thatched roof could stand up under the terrific pounding of the rain, we could hear the crashing of great trees as the forest giants went down before the lightning. The next day we set off to find out where the road went. This time we continued in the direction 
of the hills, excuse me, the country was difficult to travel over and we lost the road several times. Finally, it led us to a high mesa. Climbing a hill to reconnoiter, we found that the land lay in the shape of an hourglass, with the stream which separated its upper and lower portions forming the narrow neck. Each mesa was between four and five miles across, but there was nothing else to be observed from the hill except the sea of green jungle. On the way back to camp, I shot a deer. We dragged it into camp and skinned it. After cutting off a portion of meat for supper, I hung the balance high on a limb and put the skin away to tan. About midnight, we were awakened by the sound of snarling. Not one, but several jaguars had come into camp after the meat. A pot shot at one of them in no way discouraged them. All the rest of the night, we heard the animals prowling round. In the morning, I found that they had eaten practically all the deer. We began a systematic search of our own part of the plateau by following game paths wherever possible. The dense undergrowth prevented us from seeing objects more than a few feet distance from the trail. We did find a large level area covered with mounds, but so thickly overgrown with vines that we made no effort to explore it. There were also evidences of buildings in other localities. One of the strangest things we observed was an occasional open space in the midst of the jungle where nothing grew. Since the prolific growths can seemingly find a foothold anywhere, these barren spots near the old building sites always added a touch of mystery. One day, while circling back to camp from one of these expeditions, we heard the squealing of what we thought was a herd of jaboli, a small Central American wild pig that usually runs in gangs of twenty or more. I shot a small one and then heard a bellow, not of jaboli, but of wild boars. I had apparently shot a young boar by mistake. We made for the nearest tree. While I was helping Ginger up, the herd charged. My hands were full of Ginger, and it was impossible to draw my gun. Before I had a chance to pull myself up, one of the infuriated animals slashed at my right leg. Another caught or hooked my sandal with its tusk and almost dragged me down. Ginger above was frantically trying to tell me something, but because of the thunder below I could not understand her. I managed to get up on a limb, and then I knew we had picked a thorn tree. Also, it was full of ants. We trimmed off the thorns as best we could and settled ourselves for a nice long wait. The boars were raising bedlam, and we knew that they would be unlikely to leave in a hurry. We managed to get into good shooting positions, but they were hard targets to hit as they dashed madly about. Each time we wounded one, the rest of the herd went crazy. They repeatedly charged the base of the tree, and this gave us our best shots. Finally, as darkness fell, the remnants of the herd left. We were a long way from camp, and I climbed down the tree with the idea of getting a flare to light us home. But the boars were not far off, and I hurriedly rejoined Ginger. Then we thought we heard tigers, which gave us something else to think about. They would surely be attracted by the dead animals, and there was nothing pleasant in the prospect of staying in the tree all night with two or three big cats below. I broke off some dead branches, dropped down, and built a fire with them close to the base of the tree. Then we collected material for torches, lit them, and started home. 
The wood was not suitable for flares, and they went out continually as we felt our way through the dark forest. Each time this happened, we were sure that the boars would charge. Eventually, we arrived safely in camp to spend the rest of the evening picking out the thorns. After my leg healed, we prepared enough food to last us for several days and started out to explore the upper mesa. During the period of my convalescence, we had made new clothes from deerskin and new sandals from the tough leather of the boar's hides. We now felt equal to the task of scaling the high peaks that bounded the plateau. From those heights, we hoped to gain an accurate knowledge of the surrounding country. Traveling at first was very difficult, for our new shoes were so slippery that it was hard to maintain a foothold on the grass-covered slopes of the ridges. The second day, we entered a high mountain valley completely surrounded by cliffs on three sides. The ascent could be made only by traversing a narrow ledge that ran along the face of the rock wall. The valley was an ideal retreat since it could be easily protected against attack. There were many caves at the bottom of the cliffs with fire-blackened earth at their entrances. A narrow passageway led upward to another small flat where there were several other caves with fire-blackened floors. We decided to spend the night in one of them, but we first had to eject its tenant, a small boa. The next morning we carefully examined the caves, unearthing among the debris bits of pottery, stone chips, and arrowheads. Judging from the size of the fragments, the cave dwellers must have used huge, unglazed pottery ollas for the storage of grain and water. The shards were so weathered, however, that it was impossible to determine whether they had ever been decorated. The people had probably used obsidian for their cutting tools, for there were many fragments of the flint-like volcanic glass among the shards. The remains of a stone wall, which partially closed the entrance to one of the caves, indicated that they had been used as permanent dwelling places. We had no tools for digging, and it was our policy never to disturb anything needlessly, but we wondered what a thorough sifting of the earth on the cave floors might disclose. They had evidently been occupied over a long period. Our next objective was the highest peak on the plateau. Here we really had hopes of being able to map the surrounding country, to pick out the logical sites of ancient cities, and to map possible routes in and out. Our government charts of the region told us that we were in the neighborhood of the Continental Divide, but not until we reached the summit of the highest peak had we any idea of the magnificence of what we were about to see. To the east, the blue-gray line where the Atlantic met the horizon. On the west, the vast expanse of jungle merged into the faint haze of the Pacific. Now we realized how Balboa must have felt when he stood upon the peak in Darien. It was as though one stood on the top of the world. Off to the south, a great expanse of unknown land, of high peaks and emerald valleys, spread out as far as the eye could see. We followed a stream to where part of it entered a cave. A half mile or so beyond, we came to a large basin, now overgrown with tiger grass, 
that at one time had been a lake. We speculated as to whether this could be the enchanted lake of which the natives had so often told us. Cutting a trail to the upper end of the dry lake, we had skirted its boundaries for about a mile when we noticed that the ground was broken by little hummocks. They spread out in all directions, giving the otherwise level ground a wave-like contour. We had at last come to the site of the old city. Then we saw the pyramids. There were seven of them, arranged in the form of a huge triangle. At the apex, facing east, stood the largest of the group. All seven were so placed that from any angle the eye could always see three in an equidistant straight line. They were approximately 100 feet wide across their bases and about 50 feet high, and of course were completely overgrown with vines and other jungle growths. There was one very odd thing about them, however, which, if it was a coincidence, was still unusual. We had found no Chico Zapote trees on the plateau, but in the northeast corner of each pyramid, there was one of these trees growing, and they were huge. There were no others nearby. Now comes the purely fantastic side of the story. The reader can give it whatever interpretation he chooses. We have no idea on the subject and only relate the incidents as they occurred because they are an integral part of our experience. There may not be the slightest causal relationship between the various episodes and our attempt to dig into the mounds, but they were, at least to us, sufficient deterrence. We agreed to let somebody else dig. After our discovery of the pyramids, we planned to stay in the vicinity for several days and see what else we might find. Having decided to make camp near the river, we were returning to it along a game trail in the late afternoon. We were about to cross a large log on the trail when, just ahead of it, we saw a tiger. To see one at all in the daytime surprised us. Since they are nocturnal prowlers, I took the luger out of the holster, expecting every minute that the beast would disappear into the brush. To our amazement, he kept right on coming towards us, in a crouching position. I was too dumbfounded to realize what was happening until Ginger cried, Shoot! Quick! I emptied the luger at it, and still the beast kept coming. Ginger dropped it with a finishing shot to the head. On the log, not ten feet away, two bullets had gone clear through its chest and three into its head. It measured eight feet long from tip to tip. We skinned it and went on to the river, where we made camp. Both of us were so excited that we lost our appetites and could hardly eat our supper. The next day we went back to the pyramids, where we dug away the thick deposit of humus surrounding the surfacing. The stones were laid in a uniform manner, but not with the precision that characterized the ruins we had visited while at Wilderness Camp. There is no hard limestone in the immediate vicinity of the plateau, and no attempt had been made to cut the soft native rock into finished blocks. The pyramids gave the impression of having been rather hastily constructed, or else they were built prior to the great age of Mayan architecture. Judging from the size of the trees growing on their summits and the depth of the hummus, the city had been abandoned for many hundreds of years. We prowled round the ruins for several days, but it was 
hard to penetrate the tangled, gloomy undergrowth. To tell the truth, we were not happy about doing it. Perhaps our subconscious minds played us tricks, but we were certain that at times we heard the peculiar vibration or rhythm that we called drums. We finally decided to return to the thatched hut on the lower mesa. Several days later, while hunting on the lower mesa, we again came to the three pyramids that we had seen on first entering the plateau. To the left of the trail that we had originally made was a second city. There were many mounds and broken walls, and at its upper end we located the roadway which connected the upper and lower mesas. The only notable difference between the two sites was that here the ruins were not so deeply embedded in vegetation. Nevertheless, the task of clearing away the jungle growth from the ruins in this fertile country would be far greater than it is further north in Yucatan. The rainfall here is heavier than on the peninsula of Yucatan, and with that is combined the difference between the scanty soil of the great limestone reef that forms the peninsula and the luxuriant soil of the plateau. One tale told us by the natives aroused our curiosity more than any other. They said that here, concealed in a great vault and guarded by the spirits of the Mayan chiefs, were to be found the historical records of the Mayan people. These records covered a very long period, according to the native story, and gave a detailed account of the history, migrations, and learning, not only of the Mayas, but of other early American peoples as well. It is possible that this story may not be as fantastic as it sounds. After Bishop Diego de Landa burnt the Mayan books in Yucatan in an excess of pious zeal, he began to have some doubts as to how history might regard his fanaticism. It is said that after his return to Yucatan from a visit to Spain, he tried, without success, to induce the Mayan priests to reassemble from other sources some of the priceless manuscripts that the Spaniards had so wantonly destroyed. The burnt documents, according to the Holy Father, dealt with medicine, astronomy, geology, and the chronological history of the Mayas and other peoples. The story is that the priests were angry and not only failed to produce any further records, but concealed them, so that today there exist in all the world only three known specimens of Mayan learning, the manuscripts called the Dresden Codex, the Parisianus Codex, and the Trocortesianus Codex. Delanda naively relates that the destruction of the Mayan library caused the people great pain we burnt them all, which they took most grievously. Well, a lot of crimes have been committed in the name of religion, but few things have ever caused a greater pain to intelligent people than Delanda's stupidity. One day, while scouting along the cliffs on the western side of the plateau, we came upon a pile of huge limestone blocks, weighing at least a ton each. At one time, they appeared to have formed a great plaque, thirty to forty feet wide, on the face of the cliff. Behind the rocks was what seemed to us to be the sealed entrance to a cave. This was a highly provocative speculation, so we started to clear away the rubble. We worked until nearly sundown at the slow task, 
and then returned to camp, planning to go back early the next day and continue the excavation. We were very excited by the possibilities of the cave, if it was a cave, and what it might contain. It was certain that no one had gone to the immense labor of arranging those stones unless the place had some very special significance. While we were talking, I suddenly experienced a severe pain in my left ankle. I had no recollection of having been bitten or of having had any other accident that would cause such immediate and excruciating pain. By ten o'clock that night, my foot was badly swollen. At eleven o'clock, it was swollen to above the knee. The focal point of the pain was on the inside of the foot, about an inch below the ankle bone. By midnight, the entire limb was almost three times its normal size, and the foot was black and very hard. We tried hot packs, but that only seemed to increase the pain, and of course there was no way of applying cold packs. Ginger said that I was delirious part of the night. The next day, its condition was worse. The following quotations from the diary of September 1935 perhaps give a more graphic picture of the situation than any attempt at a description. September 2. Rain all day. If foot doesn't get better, we'll have to operate. Running high temperature. Unable to eat. Ginger is very much worried. It may be a blood clot. If so, we'll have to open artery. Can tie on either side of clot and drain. If that doesn't work, we'll have to take leg off at knee, but must have sun first to kill mold and germs. Not even a little scratch will heal in a long stretch of rainy weather such as we are having. Am praying for sun. September 4th. Still raining. Streams up, so there's no chance to get out of here. Examined surgical kit. Mold everywhere. Knives have sweated in waterproof wrappings and are badly rusted. We'll have to operate soon, for foot is getting worse, but flesh is still alive, does not dent. Feel in pretty bad shape. September 5th, raining. Had chills all night and awoke with high fever. Temperature 103 this morning. Took 30 grains of quinine. At noon, temperature 104. Ginger says delirious all afternoon, but feel better this evening. September 6. High fever all day. Rational now, but Ginger says raved all day. September 7th. Fever broke last night at midnight. Felt sharp pain in foot, and during delirium, pounded it with my fist. Then had piercing pain in my chest. Unable to breathe. Lungs felt cramped. Ginger says in stupor rest of night. This morning feel better. I had become ill on August 31st, 1935, and it took until the middle of September for me to get back into my stride. But one bit of bad luck followed another, and though we stayed in the territory for another month, most of the time was spent in recuperating from one near fatality after another. A jaguar scratched me up. When my wounds had healed, we had simultaneous attacks of tropical fever. We finally decided that it was time to go. Our decision was probably hastened by the fact that we always experienced some personal disaster each time that we dug into anything. Neither one of us is superstitious, but the country's reputation did not induce optimism or undue assurance. 
Then, too, we had had plenty of first-hand experience with which to back up reports of its potential dangers. There seemed little use in further tempting providence. There are several possible explanations as to why the present-day Indians regard this country with such awesome reverence. Some of them seem to tie in with what we observed and with the legends. Whether the Mayan migration to this plateau preceded the conquest and was due to civil strife among themselves or to invasions from the north or whether it took place after the conquest in an attempt to escape the Spanish aggressors is a point that we have no means of settling, but the immigrants were probably few in number and magnified the natural hazards of the country in an effort to frighten the less cultured tribes surrounding them into leaving them alone. Otherwise, the stories that we heard from so many sources would in all likelihood have died out long ago. Then there is another possibility. The cities may have had some religious significance and may have been considered holy places. The present-day Indians frequently refer to the area as the home of the chiefs. This might mean that the priest kings of the Mayas made some special use of it. Once or twice we heard it called the home of the chiefs of the mountains and valleys. The ancient Mayas called the four principal rulers of the world, who were the gods of the earth, of agriculture, of the forests and animals, and the benefactors of man, lords of the mountain valley. No place could be a more fitting home for them than the plateau. The caves might also indicate that it had been so considered since the earliest times. These, of course, are only speculations on our part, for beyond the fact that we discovered that the plateau had once been occupied, we knew very little more about it when we left than when we entered it. It took less time to get out of the country than it had to come in, for we knew the general direction in which to travel, but descending the cliffs was harder than climbing up them. The best route seemed to be the one we had used on entering. We stopped at the various camps along the way to pick up our clothes and equipment and to collect our buried gold. In spite of all our precautions, most of the food was spoiled and our clothes were moldy. Also, our exposed films had sweated and in consequence were ruined. After a month's travel, we arrived in Matthias Romero. There we hunted up the Arab merchant whom we had met on our previous visit. He bought the gold and gave us the wherewithal to go on a spending spree, but he didn't tell us that gold was now worth $35 an ounce. We bought films, ammunition, 500 fish hooks, two dozen packages of needles, and blue jeans, and two native shirts for ourselves. Then we began to eat and drink everything in sight, which shortly resulted in our feeling liverish. Before leaving Matthias Romero, we replenished our store of rice, corn, beans, flour, coffee, salt, tobacco, and so on, since prices were cheaper here than in Salina Cruz. And since it was just a month before Christmas, we separated to do a little private shopping. That finished, we took the train for Selena Cruz. It was nearly seven months since we had left Don Juan and Doña Facunda in La Ventosa to be gone perhaps two or three days 